We are in part 10 of our Wake Up series through the book of Isaiah, and I entitled today's message, Wake Up to Real Protection. As I began, I'm merely going to read a short statement that's going to lead the way to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, and it is this. As children of God, we are safe, but as children of God, we are not comfortable. Trials will come and suffering is real. Why? Because we are in process. But make no mistake that that which comes at a believer, that which is allowed by a good heavenly father, is in his control. If at any time he says, enough, then enough it is. All of creation knows what we are still learning. God is in control and ferociously protective of his people. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this, that which God protects, nothing destroys. That which God protects, nothing destroys. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1. 26, verse 1. It's, if you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 586 in that Bible. And we're going to dive right into it. We are going to be going through four chapters Today, which means we're going to be doing some reading and studying and then also some paraphrasing and kind of some points along the way to see what God has for us. So let's dive right in. It says in that day, in what day? In a day yet to come, a day when the Messiah makes things right. That can be the end of the world. That can be the day of the Lord. That can be the millennial kingdom. That can be whatever you want to call it. It can be any day of rescue and salvation that Jesus Christ has what he wants. Where here on earth is done like it is in heaven. In that day, things will be different. It's the day we are hurtling towards. It is the day that we are intended for. In that day... This song will be sung in the land of Judah, in the southern kingdom where Isaiah was, which was under attack, and they felt so weak and powerless, and they thought, you know what, in some ways we think we're so strong, in other ways we're scared out of our minds, it depends on the day. They were so unstable, so double-minded. But then Isaiah says this, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He, meaning God, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. All right, so let's say that he is talking about the end of the world when God makes things right. Here's what's so fascinating about the passage. We are reading it in the middle of a judgment passage. Once again, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of them being rebellious, they're in the process of being destroyed. They're in the process of being disciplined. God's judgment is raining down and he's about to take out the north in 722 BC. He will take out the south in 586 BC. And yet right in the middle of their rebellion, their drunkenness, their irritation with him, their rejection of him, right in the middle of that, he says, I have a beautiful future for you. Well, I mean, that's kind of what we read when it says that even while we were still yet sinners, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Is that not what we read that when Jesus was on the cross, even while they were still nailing him there, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's interceding in the middle of their terror of his body. Why is that important? Well, for a couple reasons. God is not reactive. So many of us believe, you know, well, I got to do this right. And I got to do, you know what, if I, if I do this and orchestrate this, then this is how God's going to do it. And if I do this, then God will do this. And if I do this wrong, God's going to trigger and then he's going to be mad at me. And then this is going to happen. God is way more mature than that. He is like the healthy parent that doesn't react off the whims and the drama of his kids. He is the one that is so above and beyond all that, that even while we're freaking out, even while we're running all over the place, even while we're in the midst of rebellion, he sees past that, sees way down the road and says, I'm preparing a place for you. That's awesome. Uh, my littlest one, Andy, asked the other day, she wanted to know, Dad, where in the Bible does it talk about my room that God is preparing for me in heaven? Because in the kids way ministry, they were teaching the kids that there's a passage where Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you home with me. And so they let all the kids dream about what their room would look like. And she's like, well, I want it, I want it to be biblically accurate. You know, so I want to, I want to know, I know the streets of gold. I know the pearly gates. What, what do we got in my room? What are we talking about in there? What's so cool about that is that she knows what we need to know, which is she is hurtling towards a beautiful future with God. She is heading toward. Now, there's going to be so many ups and downs along that road. There's going to be so many challenges. Even right now, when we are half concerned, half not concerned, half apathetic, half interested, half passionate, half lost, even in the midst of all that chaos, God goes, I will get you home as my child. I will drive there and I'm not going to react off everything. I'm bigger than that. Look at verse three. I want you to underline this. I don't care what Bible you have. Underline, well, I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of precious. Underline it. Verse three. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We need a lot of that. We got too much drama. We got too much craziness. We got too many thoughts flying through our head. You keep him in shalom, shalom. It's actually what Hebrew says. Shalom, shalom. Why do they translate it perfect peace? Well, we all have this idea that when someone would greet them and they would say shalom, they would assume that it means peace be to you. But that is such a wimpy definition. Shalom is not just the absence of difficulties. It is also the presence of blessing and favor. When you say shalom to someone else, you are saying, may your enemies fall away and may God's favor build in your life and may you have all that you need and dream of. I mean, that's shalom. When you say it twice in Hebrew, it means the perfected version of that, the ultimate version of that. That's why they call it perfect, pre perfect peace. He keeps him in perfect peace whose mind stays on him. Tracks on him, locks on him. Too many of our anxieties in our life are because our mind isn't locked on him. We're listening to the world. The world says things like this. If you lose your home, 
all hell's going to break loose. You're never going to get anything. You're going to be completely devastated. If you have to move, everything's going to be ruined and you're never going to be right again. The world says if you lose your job, that means something about your identity. You will crash and burn and no one will ever respect you again. Do you understand the anxiety these words create? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, if you lose your home, I know how to make another one. If you lose your job, you're still my child. It says nothing of your value. It says, I will find a way to provide for you. And I'm making adjustments in your life. If our mind is locked in on biblical concepts and tracking with God, our mind doesn't automatically jump to the most anxious thing. It jumps to the logical, lockdown, godly thing. It says, why? Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He's always consistently strong. He's always there. Why wouldn't we want a leader like that? For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low and lays it low to the ground and casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. What does that mean? It means God's a good shepherd. If anyone would dare stand against his enemies, I mean against his children, he will devastate them. He will crush them to such a degree that he will allow the oppressed to walk over the top of them. Do not attack the children of God. Verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. Why is that? Because a lot of our drama in our life is from poor decisions. We're making bad decisions. We make selfish decisions. We make wicked decisions. We trade that which is good for that which is polluted, right? So that screws up our lives. If we are righteous, if we walk according to what is right, things tend to even out for us. Now, We need to understand that doesn't mean all our problems go away. And we're going to talk about that in a second here. But in general, it minimizes the drama that is going on that we don't need extra stress. There are things that we need to stress about and there's things that we don't need to stress about. As we walk with God, he levels out the field so that we're not tripping over everything. We're only tripping over that which we need to. He says... In the paths of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. But if favor is shown to the wicked, he doesn't learn righteousness. Do you long for the Lord? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you assume that God would make everything easier for us? I mean, if you really wanted us to walk with him, he would make prayer easier. He would make reading the Bible easier. He would make everything getting saved easier. Isn't that true? Wouldn't he do that? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you this. When your child has a birthday party and they are getting 20 presents... How much are they valuing each one as they hand it aside and look for the next? Then if your child has an allowance and works for it and earns and saves and then finally gets the thing they've been waiting for, how much do they value it? 
All right. You think God doesn't know that? Of course he's going to make it difficult. Why? Because you own what you work for. That's why. So he's going to pull back on you. And just like when Jesus, you remember how he did all his parables? He made them difficult. It was funny because all the disciples would hear him teach and they're like, yeah, amen. I have no idea what he just said. I have no idea. Lord, what was that all about? I know. I was, I was like trying to back you up there. You know, I was your man, but I don't know what you're talking about. Had to take him aside, and this is what it meant. Why make it so hard? Because you have to press in to figure it out. When you read the Bible, God goes, I know, I wrote it complicated. That's why it's hard. I know that you don't want to read. I get that. But when you press in and you own it and you grab it and you unwrap it and go, that's it, then you hang it in your heart because it has value to you. If everything just comes to you lightly and easily, we have found that in this generation, the easier things come to us, the less we value them. And we get an entitlement attitude, which makes us feel like we aren't getting what we deserve. Are we all seeing how that's eating us alive? Then why would God encourage that in our spiritual lives? He says, you know what? I will stay right here. You come to me. Well, God, if you wanted to save me, hold up. Who needs salvation? Oh, that's you. I'm right here. Get over here. Lord, I'll meet you halfway. No, you won't. You will meet me all the way. Come over here. Because this whole, I want to just lay on the couch and I want to be saved. And No, we're not doing that. Get up, repent, godly sorrow, engage with your sin, understand what's going on, confess it, break, surrender, and we'll talk. Come on. We can do this, but I want you to be all in. I'm not interested in just doling things out to you that you kind of go, yeah, I got one of those and I got one of, the, I got two of those and I got, no, this isn't a collection. This is your entire life. So I will make you engage with me. Verse 11, I paraphrase. He said, Isaiah said, God, I know you're trying to get our attention, but our nation just doesn't get it. I know you will still defend us. Verse 13, O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They're dead. They're not going to live. They are shades. They are not going to arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged the borders of the land. I paraphrase, your discipline brings pain, but unfortunately it's not bringing change in us, Lord, due to our hard hearts. One day, yes, God, your dead in Christ will rise, but for now they lie in wait until you finish your judgment. What's the point? God is a good leader and a good king. Many things have led us and they led us down bad paths. Look at your past life. How much have you paid for poor decisions you made? And how much have you been blessed by the decisions God has led you into? Why wouldn't we then look forward and say, I want more of his leadership and less of my leadership. I want more of him guiding me because he has my best interest at heart rather than allow the world to guide me who wants my money, wants my resources, wants my life. God is a good king. He is a good shepherd. We want to be under his leadership. 27 verse 1. In that day, the day when the Messiah makes it right and punishes his enemies, 
In that day, the Lord with his hard, great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I paraphrase. If anyone would dare harm it, I will destroy them. God is not afraid of anyone or anything. What, you got a sea monster? Is that what we're worried about? I'll rip it apart. See, in Canaanite mythology... There was a sea serpent that was known as the big bad one, and they had Baal, their god, kill the sea serpent. Well, then the Assyrians had Marduk, their god, fight a dragon sea serpent, and he killed him. God says, wait a second, hold up, hold up. Who's, who's real here? No, no, no. If anyone's killing any dragons, it's me. If anyone's wiping out sea monsters, it's me. Why? Because they're nothing to me. What do you think your enemies can do to you? I'm stronger. What, what do you think? Let's, let's pick your scariest thing. What do you think can come against you that I can't fight? Well, you think it's, it's natural? Oh my gosh, these people seek my life. I made those people out of dirt. Oh, look, I watered you. Now you're mud. That's it. You're not scary to me. You, I can shut you down. Oh, look at your little beating heart. Oops, it stopped. I could shut you down. Nobody stands against me. There is nothing in this world that can possibly come against me. I can shut it all down. What do you want? Are you worried about supernatural? What are you worried about demonic and Satan? I beat him down once. I'm going to beat him down again. And demons are scared to death of me. So what is possibly going to stand against you, my child? What do you got? What kind of enemy are we going to be afraid of? Because I'm not afraid of anything. I hold the fabric of this universe together. If I say so, it is so. No one rises against me. Is that protection or is that protection? You know what I'm saying? Boy, we need to sleep better at night. You know what I mean? We need to have a little different viewpoint. It says this, in the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. I paraphrase, but first, exile. Who? Kicked out of my country. What do you mean? I mean, we have a great future, but first you're going to tear us down? Yep, that's exactly what I said. Why? Verse 9. Therefore, by this, by the exile, by the judgment and punishment, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. This will be the full fruit of the removal of a sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. I will dry up his land. What did he, what did he just say? He said, you do understand why I'm bringing judgment on your land, right? Because you have a bunch of idols, you have a bunch of garbage in your life, and I'm going to purify it out. But any time that you have a house with a bad foundation, you have to raise it to the ground. Wham! Wipe it out. Start over again. That sounds like a painful process. That sounds like a long process. That sounds difficult. Yes, but you don't want an unstable household. Therefore, God goes in and does the heavy lifting, the tearing apart, the, the demo, right? The rebuilding, the renovation, as he digs into all that, he said, I'm burning out the gods. Now, had we set aside the gods and served you, I wouldn't have to do this particular judgment upon you. 
but you do. You're not letting him go. You're hanging on to him so tightly. I got to rip them out of your hand. I got to do things that uproot them and get them out from your society, out of your psyche, out of your heart. And that is a lot of work. So yes, I will bring you into severe correction that I might purify you so we can go play again. I want to bless you, but your sin keeps ruining the day. Can we please just enjoy our time? You know, I thought about a while back this, this concept of if you were going to take your kids to Disneyland and your whole point was, man, things have been tough. Just want the kids to have a break. We're all going to have a family vacation. We're just going to laugh together. That's our whole goal. But all of a sudden your kids just turn into rebellious little brats on the way to Disneyland. And your whole point is, I just wanted to bring joy into your life and you're making everything complicated and difficult. You're ruining the point. I'm just trying to get you to fun. And we can't even have fun because you're so disobedient, I have to stop and keep correcting you, which ruins the fun. Can we not just have fun? Can't we just run into blessing? Can't we just go have a great day? Why do we have to keep stopping and me have to go, all right, you stop touching your sister. Do I have to still pull this car over? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? It says, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them and nations will come against you. There is a lot of purification that is needed in us, but let me remind you of something that is a little hard for most of us to swallow. Even if there was no sin, there would still be suffering. Why? Because of glory to God. You go, I don't, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 that's not right, Lance. No, 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 suffering's because we do bad stuff. No, it's not. Not all the time. Not all of it. There is a portion of suffering that will happen to you regardless if you do nothing wrong. How do we know that? Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10 says, he, speaking of Jesus, was made perfect through suffering. I'm sorry, he doesn't have any sin. If you take the only sinless guy and he still has to suffer, what's the point? The point is glory to God. The cross brought glory to God. The difficulty brought glory to God. Last night, I did ask Pastor Lance and a eight-year-old asked the question, why did Jesus have to get beaten? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross just so he could pay for our sins? And I had to relate to that eight-year-old because all of that beating demonstrated his adherence to the Father, his obedience. I said, when everything's going great and we obey, it's not, big, it's not a big deal. But when we are in hardship and we obey, it makes God look great. There will still be suffering even if we did everything right. Why? Because of the glory that rises to the Lord. In that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. When God is done, we will be home. 28 verse 1. 
Ah, the fading flower called Samaria of the north who's lost in drunkenness. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. Verse 7, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Well, that's descriptive. They're so hammered, the party is so intense, everyone is yacked on every table, and there's not one clean space left. That's gross. I can't even lay out blessing for, oh, look, vomit, awesome. Oh, oh, there it is again, great. This is the state of the leadership, political and religious, of the north. Why do you think God's bringing destruction upon them? Oh, I don't know. When your prophets keep talking about stuff that they figured out when they were drunk out of their mind, and that's your spiritual guidance, it's time to shut the nation down. You know what I mean? It's just not right. They were so consumed with themselves. I paraphrase. The false prophets and leaders then mock Isaiah for his simple repetitious message. They say, what do you think, we're little kids that you're going to talk down to? And they make fun of him by talking like a baby talk. It doesn't translate well into English. It doesn't really make sense because it's not supposed to. That's verse 10. Here's what they're saying. Oh, Isaiah, what, what are you going to say? Oh, I see what you're going to say. Hey, you guys shouldn't do that. What do you, what do you think? We're little kids? What, you got to talk to us because we're all a bunch of babies. You know what, man? Come up with a new message. I get it. Judgment's coming on the land. I know. You said that before. You know what? You might work on your speaking a little bit. Maybe you should be a little bit more creative. God said, what, you don't like his message? Well, that's interesting. Verse 11, by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, I'll speak to you. I'll speak to you in Assyrian when they come and wipe you out. How's that for you? I tried to teach you. You wouldn't listen. So now I'm going to punish you like the spoiled little kids that you are. They mocked him. Let me just ask you this. Are you a mocker of people that are trying to be passionate with the Lord? You make fun of that guy in worship, make fun of that girl who's all in, Jesus freak, right? Do you even sit back as a Christian and mock people that are trying desperately to be near Jesus? You think that's acceptable? That you're going to sit back like a Pharisee and judge them? When they're the ones at least trying, engaging. Oh, look at them. Oh, they're so into worship. Yeah, look at their little, oh, what are they doing? Oh, look at them try so hard. You know what? You're not trying at all. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. That is referring to their treaty they made with Egypt. They thought they could get away from Assyria and God's judgment by making a treaty with Egypt. Well, ultimately, Egypt bails out, and it doesn't work out. But they think it will. They said, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it's not going to come to us. But we've made lies our refuge and falsehood. We have taken shelter. We think we can escape the judgment of God. But God says this, verse 16, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. That was used of Jesus when he came. Whoever believes will not be wasting or wavering. 
I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. What's the point? God will pass through a judgment, but it won't be forever. But we will play according to God's rules. 29.1, ah, Ariel, Ariel. That's Jerusalem, the city where David encamped. Ariel means burning altar. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round, yet I will distress the burning altar, and there will be moaning and lamentation, and she will be like a burning altar to me when I get done with her. I will encamp against her all around, besiege her towers, raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. When I'm done with you, you will be like a whisper in the dust. You will be visited by the warrior God with thunder, earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, tempest, and the flame of devouring fire. God said, I will discipline you. But look at the next phrase. And the multitude of the nations that fight against Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her will be like a dream, a vision of the night. What did God say? I correct my kids. No one else does unless I let them. I'm allowed to correct my people, but I shield them from other people. The things going on in your life are not chaotic. They are orchestrated by God. And he is not just going to let people pick on you for no reason. That's not going to happen. Verse 9. You talk, but God's not talking to you. Verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a deep sleep and has closed your eyes, prophets, covered your heads, seers. He's blocked you from hearing him. Verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You know that verse. That's a famous one. What did he just say? He said, I'm not talking to you in prayer for a reason. Any of you have completely shut off prayer times? Do you realize prayer is supposed to be two-way? It's not supposed to be one-way? It's supposed to be two-way. So how does that work? Why is God silent on us? I'm going to give you that most commonly, 95% of the time, it's because one of two reasons. Training or discipline. Training or discipline is the only reasons why God would be silent. Training means this. I backed up to teach you to own it and walk towards me. Simply put, how do you teach a toddler how to walk? You back up. Right? I mean, isn't that how you always teach a toddler to walk? Hey, you set them up and you back up. What happens when you back up? They fall over. You put them back up and then you go, well, we did that once. That didn't work. Or do you put them back up and back up again? And they stumble towards you and they fall down. You pick them up and you back up again. God will continue to back up from you. Why? Because the only way to build muscle is resistance. He will have you press forward in prayer. To flex your spiritual muscles. He will press in to go, come on, come on, come after me. Keep going, keep going. No, 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 I will talk to you. I want you to own this. I want your heart in this. I'm not just going to make everything easy for you. Saturate yourself. Be with me. Follow me every day. Go after me. Chase after me. Then I will speak to you. Wait on me. Do not push your agenda. Do not push the time frame. I'm in charge. Wait for me. Or discipline. Our sin... Our inability to track with God blocks intimacy. And God goes, I'm not going to encourage you because you're being spoiled. So right now, I'm silent. We're done. You want to clean up your life? We'll talk. But I don't want to talk to you right now. 
You're not even listening to what I said last time. Why do I want to tell you more stuff if you're not listening to what I said the first time? You want to do this? Put this in your life, then we can talk. But I don't see any point in continuing, oh, Lord, give me a new word. Why? What, what is that going to do? So you can ignore that one too? Come on. Do what I told you to do the first time, and we can talk about a bunch of other stuff. I'd love to talk to you, but I'm not quite sure it makes any difference. You just want an experience, huh? Hmm. It says, 18, verse 18, in that day, when God gets done cleaning all that garbage up, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And Jacob will no more be ashamed. Look at verse 23. They will sanctify my name. They'll sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe at the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. What's the point? God has so much chaos that he allows into our lives to correct us and train us and move us and change us. But where is he heading towards? Peace. Where is he heading towards? Blessing. Continue to remember through this entire series, God isn't allowing your life to blow up because he doesn't love you. He is walking with you through a process because he does love you. When I get done with prayer, I'm going to have a guest come and share with you how that looks practically when everything is lost and God is found. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for renewing our minds, getting us to focus on your thoughts and not the world's thoughts, showing us our future and our hope, even though, Lord, you have to burn away so much stuff in us. God, help us to willingly hand over the gods of our life. Help us to willingly give up the sin that is in us, Lord, that you don't have to burn it out in a longer fashion. God, we repent before you. We ask that you would make us as you wish. In Jesus' name, amen.